Welcome to the Forensic Psychologist Podcast, a place where we discuss the niche practice of forensic psychology. The show episodes will take you on a trek through the intersection of law and human behavior and even some true crime. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Vienna, forensic psychologist and clinical director at Vienna Psychological Group. And although I am a licensed psychologist, please note that this podcast and information presented on this podcast is for education and informational purposes only and may not be construed as medical, psychiatric, or legal advice. The information on the podcast episodes are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition, nor is it intended to replace any medical or legal advice offered by your physician, treating doctor, or lawyer. Hey everyone. So here is episode eight. It is a continuation of my interview with Dr. Stephanie from episode seven. We are going to wrap up talking about boundaries when working in a correctional facility. And then we're going to transition into having boundaries when working with law enforcement in the community in a patrol vehicle. So that's going to go right into discussing her experience working in tandem mental health teams in the community. So oftentimes that will be the clinician riding in a patrol vehicle, an unmarked vehicle with an officer who typically is in civilian clothes. They have their badge, their identifying information, but they are dressed down, not in uniform, not to present as you know, a threat or there to, you know, quote, arrest someone, but there to help the community member in crisis. Dr. Stephanie will finish up by telling us some practical tips and strategies on how to successfully work in that kind of a position, or if you're a student, how to obtain that kind of position. And like always, if you enjoy what you hear, please leave us a review, send me any feedback you might have, Also send me some ideas of any topic areas you might want to hear about in the future. Without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Stephanie. Welcome back, guys. This is part two with Dr. Stephanie. We left off talking about boundaries. And so let's finish up that piece real quick because I think it kind of can translate over into also working in tandem with law enforcement on a mental health team in the community, it's going to be the same issue. So if you can review a little bit about how important boundaries are, having your boundaries set in the jail with both maybe the people that are detained, the inmates, and then also with custody staff. Sure. Yeah. So when you're working in mental health in general, boundaries are really important uh, regardless of the setting. So uh, when I work in private practice, I also establish boundaries. But I will say that working in a custody environment it's even more so important. Um, you have to take into consideration the population you're working with. Um, you set strict boundaries from the start because you'll find that if you don't do that, you will get tested. Um, so when you're working with an inmate, they might try to pull information from you. And even when you're working, again, in a clinic, that's you're not there to provide information about yourself. You're there to provide a service. So... I was always would set boundaries from the beginning and how do you, how I would do that was just if I saw that the conversation would go in an inappropriate direction, I would cut it off from the very beginning. I wouldn't allow it at any point because once you do allow it, it's a slippery slope. So you just have to really set boundaries from the beginning. 
in, in regards to working with the inmates. And then I think the second part of the question was also uh, working with uh, custody personnel, correct? Yes. So while, you know, working in custody um, or in a correctional facility, the role of mental health versus custody are, are different. However, I think the two disciplines, or at least in my experience, really could come together in a cohesive manner. But as far as with boundaries, you know, it's a professional environment. So I think it's important to always remember when you are at work, you want to conduct yourself professionally. And you could do that and still maintain a good and collegial relationship with mental health staff, medical staff, custody staff. Um, You know, I was never employed as a custody personnel. Um, I was always mental health. So I can't speak to all of the roles that custody have in the facility. But in general, you know, I could say they're, they're tasked with monitoring everyone's safety, inmates and staff. And they're law enforcers. So they're enforcing the rules of the facility. Whereas a mental health professional, your role is to provide necessary services to your client. And the client in this case is the inmate. But even though we have really different roles, so you're not going to be taking on the role of a custody officer, whereas they're not going to be taking a role on a role of a mental health professional, it is really important to remember that we are still working together um, and we one can't really perform the function of the other. For example, when I needed to meet with an inmate, I could not do that without relying on my custody counterpart. So I would have to ask the custody officer to either get the inmate for me out of the cell and, and bring the individual to the table or if I wanted to go and approach and I needed to discuss something with an inmate, I let custody know, or if anything needed to get done. So for example, if the inmate needed higher level of care because they required more services, I couldn't do that without custody either because they're the ones that would then move the individual for me. And then if someone is having a mental health crisis on the floor, custody would then contact us, mental health professionals. So even though our roles were different, we still really did have to work together to be able to um, accomplish either task, whether it's from the custody side or from the mental health side. Right, right. So you're going to work together with custody, but make sure you stay in your own lane per se. And Mm -hmm. I don't think in my experience, and sure not in your experience either, but we're not exchanging information like mental health related information with deputies. Um, Maybe I think I can probably recall maybe about maybe once or twice when it was a crisis call and it had mm-hmm. to do with safety of the inmate. And right. I think that was like one of the times that the like diagnosis was disclosed only because we, again, were working, like you mentioned, in tandem with them as a team to uh, get them, you know, maybe out of their cells into safety. So you're really not sharing like mental health information with them though. You're not like going and talking about the person's treatment or diagnosis just randomly. Um, Sometimes there are maybe some situations where if it's, um, you know, a higher level of care or treatment team meeting, they sometimes pop into those so they can better help assist the inmates. But I think that's one of the boundaries that we also kept uh, theirs, trying to make it as confidential as possible. But I mean, obviously there's limits, you know, providing services in the jail. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, right there. Unless there's exigent circumstances, you you're not necessarily going to go up to the custody officer and and tell them someone's diagnosis uh, that, because that that information that just it's not relevant. So you're going to protect the confidentiality. However, there were times when consultation with custody was necessary. Um, 
For example, when you're ruling out differential diagnoses, custody can actually be so valuable because they're on the floor and usually they're assigned to the same floor. So 10-hour shifts, sometimes they're working 18-hour shifts. So they're observing an individual day in and day out all day long. So getting information from them from their observations sometimes is really helpful in um, for diagnostic clarification. So in in those times when I was unclear or I wanted some clarification for diagnosis, I would um, talk to custody about what are they observing when I'm not there. Right. Exactly. They have eyes on them 24-7. So sometimes maybe if someone can't, what would you call it? If someone can't, you know, express themselves or say what's going on with them, or maybe they're too psychotic to even say what's going on and you might be seeing maybe more of like a prodromal phase or something where they're like flat affect and you don't get a lot of information from them. I mean, custody might be seeing what they're doing and those observations would be extremely helpful or kind of sometimes, I think I remember when I had, like you mentioned, the differential diagnosis, um, like bipolar disorders, I wouldn't necessarily see the manic behavior when I'm on the floor, but for that small hour that I was there or that you know, 30 minute meeting with them, but custody would see it. Custody would see the excessive cleaning behavior and the pacing and the cells. So yeah, I agree with you. The uh, information from them is so invaluable and helpful. And uh, that's why we work usually in the jails or at least the ones, you know, we're familiar with um, have worked together with mental health as a team, which is nice. And so also you mentioned, I wanted to touch a little bit on the the boundary setting with the inmates, because I think that gives us a lot of good experience in forensic work and forensic psychologists. We can go in there and really get a good look and good feel for someone that might be malingering or mm-hmm. exaggerating symptoms. I mean, not necessarily all the way malingering, but maybe they're embellishing or exaggerating. And so I think with those folks, you definitely, well, with all of them, but with those folks, I mean, they really need the boundaries and the limits set right mm-hmm. up front from the beginning so they know who you are, what your role is, you know, and you can help uh, maybe treatment plan effectively or house them appropriately. Tell me, do you have any experiences you want to share about that? Maybe where you kind of got that sense that someone was trying to, I don't know, maybe, maybe not malinger or it could be maybe malingering, but where they were trying to get outside that role of maybe like client doctor relationship and they were trying to get some sort of secondary need met. Can you tell us about like an experience that you might have had? Yeah, let me, um, I mean, and those, those experiences did come up um, throughout the time I worked there. I'm just trying to see if I can remember a specific like I think scenario. like maybe like something. I know I'm trying to think of it. I think it's a good case study to kind of share with someone if, about that kind I of could experience, actually, like meds or something. Like, yeah, I mean, I could share oh, as far as the, to address the first um, part that you asked about maybe ruling out malingering. I could share a very specific scenario that stood out in my head that kind of went back to uh, the topic of working with custody. Um, it was an individual that I did suspect um, there was exaggeration. And I mean, I took into account how I came to this was just reviewing of the chart. So um, reviewing how the individual presented over time and um, also just the symptoms that the individual was presenting versus what they were telling me. There, there was just so many inconsistencies. And the, the symptoms, the presenting symptoms, the way they were paired, it wasn't something you would see. It was it was almost like an individual that maybe read about different symptoms and just threw them all together and tried to exhibit all of them, which um, 
didn't seem to even exist diagnostically. So uh, what helped me um, is I spoke to custody personnel because I suspected that what I was seeing was not how this individual behaved when mental health was not on the floor. And so by talking to custody, they expressed that this individual does in fact act completely differently when I'm on the floor. And to further corroborate, you know, these suspicions, I had the custody walk me into this area of the facility where I was able to observe the inmate when they can't see that I'm there. And that then further solidified the fact that the individual is acting very differently when I'm there versus when I'm not there. And then ultimately in this case, the summit, the malingering um, diagnosis was confirmed via um, state hospital uh, because the individual had been sent there and they came back with um, a diagnosis like that because they do testing there. So um, where I, I don't do that at the jail, so I wouldn't formally diagnose them with that, but I might suspect it. And then mm-hmm. in a facility where a person can administer, where a mental health professional can administer you know, psych testing, they can confirm such a diagnosis. So um, that's just one that sticks out to me. But as far as uh, boundary testing, I mean, there's definitely been situations where an inmate might ask you to do something that's inappropriate. So um, something it could be something even as simple as mailing a letter for them. And um, that's, I mean, you, you don't do favors. And that would, I've had um, inmates ask, oh, can you do me a favor? And right away I stop them and, and I say, I do not do favors. I'm here to address clinical needs. So I wouldn't even say, well, what is it that you need? I say it from the very beginning. I don't do favors. We could discuss clinical needs. And sometimes that is actually what they meant. So I just made sure they restated it. So if they, for example, wanted to see a psychiatrist, I would say, I can get your clinical needs met, but I don't do favors. So even the wording, I made sure I um, clarified so that there was no misconceptions about what my role is. Yeah, exactly. And so I'm sorry, I gave you like kind of a combo question there. I was trying to tie them together, but they really were two separate questions. But thank you for answering that and providing that example um, because it just really goes to show that you need to set those things up front and it does happen. It happens quite often because it's jail and, you know, jail can be hard for some or sometimes they just want to see as if they can, you know, they want to get as much as they can get. So those boundaries definitely as a clinical person going into a correctional setting, you need to set those boundaries up front and mm-hmm. expect it will happen without a doubt. Someone on your caseload will 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 test you out and try you. So I think we learn that in custody, uh, as a clinical person working inside of a custody facility or a correctional facility, we really learn the importance of setting those boundaries up front and reinforcing them. So a great clinical skill to have. And also, you know, very, what would you call it? Like even in a treatment setting, mm-hmm. you know, a treatment relationship that is actually, you know, very therapeutic for some and they need a lot of that. So that answered both those uh, questions that I combined for you. So thank you. But moving on to the second part of our interview, we're going to talk about your experience working um, on a mental health team with law enforcement. So transitioning from working in a correctional facility hand in hand with law enforcement where you're you know, providing clinical treatment services to inmates, but now riding in a patrol vehicle on the streets in the communities uh, with a law enforcement partner going out to do mental health evaluations. Can you tell us a little bit about your work in that area and maybe some of the other things that are provided besides the evaluation piece? Sure. Yeah. 
So like you mentioned, I'm partnered with law enforcement in their, uh, in a vehicle. It's, it is a patrol vehicle, but it's an unmarked car. So we respond to what would be categorized as mental health crisis calls. So uh, for example, if an individual is presenting as a danger to themselves, whether they themselves reporting suicidal ideation or someone observes them engaging in a behavior that could cause bodily harm, or if they're uh, presenting as a danger to someone else or are gravely disabled, you know, they're not able to care for their needs due to a mental illness, we get sent out to those types of 911 calls to do an evaluation and determine whether or not an individual meets criteria for involuntary hospitalization. Sometimes we also get sent out not necessarily to do eval evaluations, but um, if there is a critical incident such as a barricade, and it might even be for arrest purposes, so someone is barricading themselves maybe in an, an apartment, for example, and maybe SWAT gets called out, mental health team might also get called out to provide pertinent information. So because these are exigent circumstances, we are able to release information that's relevant that will help de-escalate or anything that that the law enforcement officers dealing with the call might need. So if they need that type of information, we'll provide that. And sometimes the family is standing by. We'll talk to the family member. So um, we might not necessarily be doing an evaluation. We'll be providing support. We also get sent to calls where an individual might be um, on top of a high building or on top of a bridge. So they're called jumper calls. And um, sometimes our teams get sent out to help de-escalate a situation like that as well. Right. And so I know a lot of people ask me on Instagram or I've gotten some emails about psychologists or clinicians because there are social workers that work on these teams as well or marriage and family therapists. Yeah. I get questions about whether or not the clinicians are able to go out and negotiate. And I know from the teams that I've worked on in the past, they don't allow clinicians to negotiate. And that's really for protection for the clinician. But is that the same in your experience? So um, yes and no. Generally, the clinicians don't, but that doesn't mean we haven't. So I have had a call where I have done... I. It was a critical incident and I was um, talking over a loudspeaker, but I had my law enforcement counterpart standing by and there was also one of the law enforcement supervisors standing by. Um, So there was law enforcement providing me information um, and I was doing part of the negotiation. So um, not always no, but in some cases um, our teams have. Now, if it's a situation, like I'll give you a situation where we wouldn't be doing negotiations. So if this is um, a hostage negotiation, no, we don't do that. We, they have um, their SWAT teams, there's crisis response teams that are law enforcement that are trained in negotiations. So those types of negotiations, my team um, that I work with doesn't do. But in a situation where an individual may be um, suicidal or may not be complying with law enforcement instructions, we have done some of the negotiating. Okay. So it sounds like um, maybe on some teams, and again, it's different for everyone across the country working on these mm-hmm. tandem mental health teams or even working, you know, as part of the actual police department, because I know some psychologists and clinicians are actually 
hired by the departments. They are not in tandem, but they do work for the department. So it kind of depends on where you're at, but it sounds like, you know, in your situation, your case, there was a, a firm line drawn when it came to hostage negotiations. And so that sounds about right. And in mine, when I worked on the tandem team, uh, nobody, not even the psychologists that were employed by the department were sent out to do negotiations. I think like years past they were, but they kind of changed that and they just had to do with, you know, making sure that, you know, again, we're keeping the roles completely separate. Um, you know, law enforcement being responsible for safety and control of a situation and then clinicians just, you know, maybe assisting with by assisting them by providing mental health information that would be useful. But essentially, you know, just to recap what Stephanie was saying is that um, going out on these teams as a clinician working, you know, in tandem with an officer in their uh, patrol vehicle, unmarked patrol vehicle, typically. I know in some actually in my areas, such a tangent, but in the area where my private practice office is, I think that the clinicians out here actually ride in marked vehicles. Um, I've seen them. I actually have had one of them at my office before when I used to do treatment. So again, it varies everywhere. It varies in, in different places in the country. But um, essentially we're going out, if you're a clinician riding with the officers on the, these kind of tandem mental health teams, you're going out evaluating for involuntary civil commitment for psychiatric treatment. So for those listening, I will link the Latterman Peters Short Act, the 5150 sections of the Welfare and Institution Codes in the show notes. If you're looking to get into this area, it's probably um, a section you want to review and know like the back of your hand. Because I think when I took the LPS designated test, I yeah, you had to take a test. So I will link those for anyone interested in learning a little bit more about the LPS Act in show notes. And it is an involuntary civil commitment. So even though law enforcement's going out, when someone is put on a 5150, Welfare Institution Code 5150, it's due to a mental illness. Um, and it's either because they're a danger to self, others, or like Stephanie said, gravely disabled. And they're not necessarily being charged with a crime. There are cases where, I'm sure, Stephanie, you probably had some of these too, where we did both. Obviously, I didn't do the arresting for the crime. My officer partner did. Um, but they still were placed at uh, the hospital on a 5150. And then once they were stabilized, they were then transferred to a custody facility. But these teams are really meant to kind of be a diversion, I think, of some sort to jail sometimes, especially if they're, you know, is an absence of a crime committed. They're obviously not going to be charged with a crime. I guess that was my clarifying statement. It's not to go out to... Uh, necessarily arrest them. You're not assisting with that. Um, mm -hmm. Is that kind of your experience too? Yeah. It's very rare where it was both an arrest and right, a right. Because generally, um, if it is an arrest, then uh, we're, we are not involved, but there have been. So those are more rare because if an individual is arrested and they are taken um, to a jail facility, they'll be taken to one that has mental health treatment available as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, it will just be stabilized in the facility, like in, in the jail facility. Right. Um, but some, sometimes, yeah, something comes about where while the interview is being conducted, uh, something else comes out where there is a crime element as well. And that's how we sometimes end up with both. But usually um, we're just there for the mental health part. Right. Same. It was rare. And usually when they're taken to the 
the jail facility because maybe a crime occurred. Yeah, we're not involved. And usually it that, that would be like when um, on the teams I was on, it would be when there was like a call out, kind of you were describing those, um, you know, hostage calls or jumper mm-hmm. calls or something. It's usually that where they'll, you know, take them to the jail facility that can provide the mental health treatment. And then uh, we would rarely be involved. But it is a nice service to be able to add and give to the community um, because there are so many folks out there that need the help on the streets. And we are always, I think when I was working on the team, we were always busy. I mean, there was like not really a dull moment. I mean, we definitely had some downtime, but multiple calls a day for Mm -hmm. these kind of evaluations. So yeah, that's cool. So tell me, let's get into more about the environment. So tell me what it's like riding in a patrol vehicle. For anyone that hasn't been in a patrol vehicle before, tell us what it's like to ride um, in the passenger side. So, you know, for me, prior to this position, I had done um, multiple ride-alongs with different departments. And I'd already been involved in working with law enforcement you know, all through graduate school. So to me, it just felt like riding in just another car. And maybe that's only because I had already been on ride-alongs and it wasn't new to me. The only thing that I will say is different is it's almost like a mobile, or it is not almost, it's like a mobile office. And that's exactly what it feels like because since we're mobile, I do my work in the passenger side while my partner is driving. I have my laptop open and I'm doing my work. I'm reviewing charts if we're going to the call and, and the individual who I'm responding to has a chart. I'm reviewing the charts and after we're done the call, I'm doing my paperwork in the car. So the only thing to me personally that feels different is that it's a mobile office. I mean, someone else might see it differently for someone else. Maybe their first experience in a patrol car wouldn't feel like a, any other car. But I guess for me, it really didn't feel at all different or uncomfortable. I think I was just comfortable in the role. So I mean, I, I just, yeah, to, I can't really say that it that there's anything that feels different about it other than the fact that it's a mobile office for me. Yeah, it's kind of high-paced or quick-paced. You're looking up through chart systems or whatever recording system there is, right, to look up the (laughs) potential client's chart and the other person, your partner's driving. So it's kind of, you know, you have to be able to be flexible to have an office in the car and it's a little different. It's definitely (laughs) not like you're at your private practice office and you have, you know, you're prepping and you have plenty of space and time to do this. No, you're doing it in like the 10 minute car ride on the way to the call. Yeah. I will say this though, for individuals out there that are interested in this work, um, but then feel like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm going to get car sick, not to get discouraged because um, you don't actually have to do it that way. After you're done a call, you can go to a patrol station and sit down and set up and do your work. Or if you get sent to another call immediately after you've that done one, you know, you have the at the end of the day when you go back to an office, you are able to do the work. I just prefer to do it that way um, because I'm able to document while we're driving and that way I'm able to be more efficient, but you don't have to do it that way. Yeah, you definitely will have options available to you. So tell me what a typical day looks like with for someone that is, you know, in employed or contracted or whatever, what's the typical day look like for a clinician working in tandem with a police officer in their vehicle providing these assessments? How does the day start? What kind of calls do you go to? So the day will start, we have our um, we have morning meetings and I think it might be different in different, um, different teams, but with us, there's a morning meeting and we meet with our um, partners that we're assigned to and we go to, the, our partner gets 
the vehicle, we go to the vehicle and we're out the whole day. We're, we're out in the field the entire day. Uh, we get calls assigned to us. So we'll be responding to a call either um, at the patrol station or on scene. It's, it really just is case by case and it depends on what type of call comes out. So um, since we're going out in the field, since we're meeting the patrol unit at the station um, with the client and conducting the evaluation at the station. We might get a call, um, for example, maybe uh, a loved one calls 911 and says, my spouse threatened to harm themselves and my, my spouse is depressed and has a knife and a cut themselves. So a patrol unit is going to respond to that call first. Um, they have to secure the scene. If there was any type of um, weapon involved, maybe if an individual did cut themselves, they just have to make sure that there's not no sharp objects on the person. Um, then we get called out. And so the individual has already been detained for the evaluation. And then we get called out to conduct the evaluation. We gather collateral information from the responding patrol unit. If there are other sources available, we'll gather information from the other sources as well. So if the family member that actually called 911 is available, we might get the additional information. Um, so for example, if this is someone that has harmed themselves, I, I would want to know, have they harmed themselves in the past? Specific for pertinent information, I would try to get in contact with the individual that called 911. Um, if we determine that the person meets LPS 5150 criteria, I'll call and try to secure a hospital bed, and then we will transport the individual to the hospital. Either myself and my partner will transport an individual. Sometimes we have to have the patrol unit assist where they'll transport and we'll follow them to the hospital. If there's any type of medical emergency concerns, we contact the fire department. They sometimes might help with transport and then we will follow and assist. I will follow behind them in our vehicle. In some cases, we might need to get a private ambulance. Again, it, it just, it's a case-by-case. Case. Um, so if we get the private ambulance, we stand by, wait for the ambulance, and then they take the client and still transport to the hospital. If we're in the hospital with the client, we then wait until the individual gets admitted um, and then we leave and we go to the next call. And what kind of case would render the fire department transporting or a private ambulance? So, if there's, so um, for example, we might be evaluating someone and an individual might say that they're having chest pains and then we would call the fire department. And if the individual has also, um, if they immediately are reporting chest pains, we're not going to to conduct an evaluation, we'll get medical care right away. But let's say the evaluation has been conducted and there's enough to warrant a 5150, I'll still write the application, but then if they then say that they're experiencing some type of um, cardiac distress, we'll call, we'll get FB, they'll come and they will transport likely to a medical ER and then we'll still come and we'll give them, we'll give the medical staff the 5150 application, and then if the medical doctor determines that the individual does need to be kept for a psychiatric hold, they'll then um, transfer them to an LPS designated facility once they're medically stable. So for medical emergencies, we're going to get um, the fire department. If an individual is so intoxicated, um, where we can't determine what did they ingest? Did they, is there multiple substances? Is there a risk that there's going to be a medical emergency? We would call the fire department. If there are other concerns, uh, like maybe an individual is, maybe an elderly individual where we're, we don't want to put them in the back of a police car where it's going to, where the person might be 
fragile and it might be really difficult for them to get into the back of that car, it would be better to, where it's an ambulance transporting um, on a gurney, that might be something we'll call a private ambulance for. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Other reasons. Yeah. And then if there's a, if a person is acutely psychotic and also um, maybe hostile and volatile where it is necessary to get um, a gurney with um, restraints so that everyone's safe and no one gets hurt, um, you might also call an ambulance. Okay. Got it. Yeah. That all makes perfect sense. I'm, I'm now remembering. It's coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> now, are you doing the evaluation piece, like you're doing the assessment on the person or is the officer also helping or how does that work? So in this case, unlike working in a correctional facility, working with this team, um, myself and my partner are in the role. So uh, I know we refer to each other as partners. And we, are, we are partners. We're there to provide mental health services. I'm the one conducting the evaluation, but my partner stands by and sometimes might also... Um, talk to the client and ask them additional follow-up questions that are related to mental health. So while I take the lead on the evaluation, whereas um, you know my partner, of course, is still is always taking the lead when it comes to security, making sure everyone's safe, we are still working together to make the determination if an individual meets criteria. Okay. Yeah, same. I mean, I think my partner did quite a few evaluations himself sometimes because um, at least in California, peace officers can actually write the LPS holds themselves. They can actually put someone on a 5150. They don't need a clinician to do it. So peace officers have those abilities. Uh, clinicians who are LPS designated. I can't think of other people who have that designation, but um, yeah, I think that's it. Clinicians that have the special designation and, and peace officers have that within their you know powers and abilities to their jobs. So Officers, I think it kind of, again, depends on where you are in the country or what county or what uh, department you're in, but officers um, are very much trained to conduct these evaluations. They um, go to a lot of mental health training. And I know in the teams I worked in, we actually provided that training to them. And I think they got special training through the FBI as well. Is that kind of similar to what where you're at? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised I was, when I got paired up with my partner when I first started my partner was probably a better interviewer than I was in those evaluations. They are are such good interviewers. And my partner's so good with the escalation and familiarity with the symptoms, the diagnosis. They're really, really well trained. Yes. And I think that's an important note to make about the de-escalation piece because a large part of the academies out here in SoCal, at least I know... um, being an AICC instructor level one, they spend a significant amount of time uh, learning de-escalation techniques in the academy. Mm-hmm. And then they have, of course, ongoing training in that area. So it's interesting because I think lately it's been brought up that they probably receive a little bit more weapons training than learning to talk to people, which is not true. They actually spend more time in de-escalation class than they do mm-hmm. learning to fire a gun. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. What did I leave out about that would be important? Is there anything that you want to add to this interview? Anything that I left out that would be important for someone to know if they were looking into getting into that kind of line of work? Um, I mean, as far as the work out in the field, I think we've pretty much covered it. I will say this, at least one of the team that um, I work with, we also can are involved or at least I'm involved in um, 
trainings too, and that piece is um, optional. But if you are interested and um, willing to conduct trainings with the patrol officers, so not the officers on these mental health teams, the officers out in the field, um, they go through trainings and um, they have to do, I think that these mental health trainings are something that um, it's a requirement. I don't know how many hours are required, but I know that the officers are required to go through some of these trainings and we have the opportunity, the mental health staff actually has an opportunity to be involved in this. So I'm involved in conducting mental health training and teaching the officers about um, certain symptoms, disorders, and the escalation techniques that would be helpful when working with individuals with mental illness. So um, that's just um, if you're interested in doing training and you like that type of work, that's, that's a piece of it that I find um, fun to do. I enjoy the training part. Yeah. So you're, it's um, a double duty. You're doing the evaluations for involuntary psychiatric hospitalization with them on the streets. And then you're also providing other officers in general, mental health training on how to work with folks with mental illness or disabilities. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. I think we did some of that too. So same, very rewarding. I think the last piece, I was just looking at my notes. I think the last piece I want to touch on is the actual evaluation itself. Mm-hmm. and maybe some of the different types of things you're looking for. Because we did mention that these evaluations are for involuntary psychiatric hospitalization. You are essentially putting them on a hold, meaning they can't leave. Um, they're going to be in a facility because they are a danger to themselves, others, or gravely disabled. So, and gravely disabled. Can you touch on that real quick before we get into the actual evaluation, just for those who may not know, what is gravely disabled? Yeah, so if an individual is unable to care for their basic needs to the point where they're causing, um, they're putting themselves in imminent danger and it's due to a mental illness. So, for example, an individual that is not providing sustenance for themselves, so they're not eating and they're not drinking liquids, and a good example of how it could be tied to a mental illness is if you have an individual with schizophrenia that has um, these paranoid delusions that their food is being poisoned. And as a result, they've stopped eating and consuming fluids. So um, this might not be your standard danger to self or what you might think, how you might conceptualize being a danger to self, but this behavior is putting them in a very dangerous situation. So if they're not able to care for themselves, they might both be considered gravely disabled and possibly a danger to self as well because of the situation that their behaviors are putting them in. So let's say a person is not is not providing food and then if food is being given to them, they might also not be accepting it due to one of their symptoms and maybe not clothing themselves. So sometimes we get sent out to calls where an individual might be fully nude and could potentially look emaciated if they haven't been eating and not clothing themselves and are able to care for themselves and we're seeing a mental health symptom that could constitute gravely disabled. Um, I will say that out of all the uh, 5150 applications that I have done, primarily I, they tend to be danger to self, danger to others. I haven't done too many grave disability holds. Um, I also think that those sometimes are, um, it might be more difficult to prove. So for example, if an individual due to a mental illness is unable to provide for food, clothing, and sheltering and 
you have enough um, information to constitute a disability hold to write it, but you might not be able to do a thorough enough evaluation to really determine is the individual unable to provide shelter? Are they unable to provide these things? Because you're only meeting with them. You don't know their history all the time. You might just be meeting with them for a short period of time. But you could tell the, the situations they're putting themselves are, in fact, placing them at imminent risk. So they might meet criteria more for dangerous self versus grave disability. Right. And you brought up a good point there. You are meeting with them for a short period of time. So in that short period of time that you have with them, what kind of questions might you be asking to get the information that you need quickly? So, you know, I would always ask if the individual has any thoughts of wanting to harm themselves or others. But again, just because a person says no to that, that does not mean that they, you know, are not a danger to themselves or to others. A right. lot of the time, we're writing these applications based on the information that's provided to us. So the call circumstances, I've even reviewed, um, you can even review camera footage uh, if it's available. So for example, if a call took place and it was recorded, so I've had situations where a family member might call 911 and had actually recorded what was going on and then showed it. So, I mean, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes we, we're in a situation where we actually are able to witness it mm-hmm. and the individual might deny everything, but we have evidence that this behavior did in fact occur. So sometimes we're writing an application based on what we're observing or sometimes I go out in the field and witness the situation with my own so if I see someone um, running into traffic, putting themselves in a very dangerous situation, and sometimes I might evaluate the person and they'll tell me, they'll deny if something like that happened. So I'm, I'll ask all the questions. They might say no to everything. But if I see this individual engaging in a behavior that is dangerous to them and there's um, mental health symptoms, I could still write the application even without them responding, um, even without them endorsing any of these items during the evaluation. Right. You're, it sounds like you'll have to look for some collateral information, whether it be, you know, like you said, on the videos or family members, their, I guess their calls in to request the service in the first place or whoever the caller was, right, that requested patrols, observations mm-hmm. of them. And are you also providing some sort of like, you're providing some de-escalation yourself in there if they're a little erratic or anxious? You're providing some sort of, I'm guessing, de-escalation within that? Yeah, area. we do. Yeah, and I mean, we always try to provide support, you know, explain the process um, to the best that we're able to. Um, sometimes what we have to de-escalate is just to terminate the evaluation if person is in acute distress and mm-hmm. conducting the evaluation is only making them more agitated. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to push and ask every question. It's not, you know, since it's, it's just not always necessary. Um, you know, we need the pertinent information to make sure that the individual does meet criteria and we can justify writing the application. But once we have that information, um, if I see that trying to communicate with the individual is causing them more distress, then sometimes we just have to um, terminate the interview for the client's benefit. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you're using a lot of crisis intervention skills. Is there any kind of training that you would recommend someone go through? I mean, obviously, if you're hired with these kind of departments and stuff, yeah, you go through, yeah. you'll go through it. But to maybe right. prep ahead of time, like someone, again, planning or looking towards applying to these kind of positions, mm-hmm. 
Do you know of any trainings like through mental health associations or what have you that offer, you know, crisis intervention skills? I think what type of training I did, although the only thing is on my training um, was out of state. Because I always like to link trainings and information in the show notes for people. Um, have you heard of, I'm, I'm not sure if they do exactly crisis intervention, but um, I mean, they do to some large, actually they, yes, they do. I just don't know if they do it specifically for these kind of teams, but the, um, the SISM Association, like the Critical Incident Stress Management, George Everly uh, runs a lot of the trainings. I'm trying to think of what the name is. I should know because I am a certified SISM provider. <laughs> I just don't know. I forgot the nonprofit that it's housed under. Uh, well, I will think about it and then I will link it in the show notes for everyone. But those are trainings you can do um, probably online now because of COVID. But in the past, they offered them. They're all throughout the country. I usually attended the ones in San Diego every year. They would do them in December. I don't, you know, there's trainings that I've gone to too. Not just, I mean, yes, my graduate studies were out of state, but there are trainings I've gone to in California during internship, during post-structural hours. And I just completely blanking on the name. Okay, I found it. I'm looking at, I looked it up on my iPhone. The one I'm talking about is through ICISF. So International Critical Incident Stress Foundation. And so through their you can do some different types of critical incident stress management as well as crisis intervention and a whole host of other kind of things related to crisis management. I like this organization because it also provides these trainings to law enforcement and fire departments because they have SISM teams. Mm -hmm. So um, I will link the SISM through ICISF in the show notes for people, but if you think of any other training too, feel free to email me and then I can also... I will check and if there's any good ones that I think will be helpful, I'll definitely let you know and then yeah, you can link them. Yes. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground between the two parts and a focus really on how mental health can work in tandem with law enforcement, both in a correctional setting and outside of a correctional setting. And Anything else that you want to add to that? Um, or as we usually, I usually ask my guests at the end of the interview, you missed it on the first one. Well, I missed it because I didn't ask you because we were having a part two. Um, any like tips for new students or students or new psychologists or psychologists maybe looking to get into this? Any tips that you want to give them to get started? I mean, just the main tip that I had mentioned um, in part one was really to just start thinking about your training now when you're planning for your first practicum, just if this is something you're interested in, start trying to shape your training in such a way that that will make you um, a competitive candidate when it's time to match for internship, for postdoc. And again, you know, it does not have to be in corrections. So just because you've never had any experience in corrections, it absolutely doesn't mean you wouldn't be able to get a job in corrections. There's a lot of people that I worked with when I was an intern there that had come to the jail without having had any of that experience prior. But it's um, just about the, the types of populations you have worked with. So inpatient hospitals, for example, like I mentioned in part one, that would be a really great place to do a practicum rotation if you're interested in working in crisis intervention because you'd be utilizing those types of interventions in inpatient settings. 
So really just start thinking about your training now. And another reason that would be good because you might do a practicum rotation somewhere and realize that that's just not what you like and, and maybe you don't want to do it. And then you'll be able to restructure your training for your next rotation doing something completely different. Yeah, that's right. I Now I'm remembering. I must be having a memory... Um memory issue today. I did ask that on our first interview. So again, the more we hear something, you know, I think it helps us. It clicks a little bit more. So I asked you that again on purpose because I just wanted you to reiterate <laughs> to plan for your training. And I agree with you. I think um, getting a rotation in an inpatient psychiatric hospital is a great way to start if you do want to get into working in corrections or with law enforcement because it does require you to have, you know, those crisis intervention skills down and like know them like the back of your hand and then also be able to work with other disciplines and work in a rather quick pace. Again, it's not like private practice or an agency where you have time and you can plan. It's really like go, go, go. And so time management um, is a big deal. And so you can get started with that, I think, relatively easy at a host- at an inpatient hospital setting. So Thank you for sharing that. And as we sign off, I want to let people know that we will be getting into doing a series with law enforcement officers and we're going to hear from um, their side now, their point of view on doing these kind of evaluations working in the team. So stay tuned for that series. It's coming up soon. Thank you, Stephanie, for being here. I appreciate your time both last weekend this week. No problem. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up my two-part interview with Dr. Stephanie. And just for a heads up about future episodes, I have some solo ones coming your way. I am going to overview the neuropsychological research of cluster B personality disorders. In those episodes, I will dive into general personality theories and then move into overviewing the different neuropsych profiles of the different disorders. So antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder, and borderline personality disorder. We will finish up season one with a couple episodes on business. So how to start your forensic psychology practice. And this will be from our own perspective here at my practice. We're going to talk about different systems we have in place. We'll talk about things that didn't work for us and some things that do work well for us. So if you're a nerd like me and love to track things and have a billion Excel sheets, you're going to want to listen to those episodes. So stay tuned. And if you have questions for those topic areas, send them to me ahead of time and I can address them on the podcast. My email is in the show notes and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Nicole Vienna. Take care, guys. For all you forensic psychology connoisseurs, if you enjoyed this episode, please give the show five stars and subscribe for more. Help me get the podcast out there to others who might be interested by writing a review and sharing on your social channels. And as always, find and connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Dr. Nicole Vienna.